What does it mean to remember the Holocaust with intention, and why is that different from just learning about it in history class? How can teaching the dark history of the Holocaust help equip young people with the tools to actively participate in a democratic society? And what role do democratic values, individual rights, and an understanding of diversity play in combating anti-Semitism? Welcome to the Conservative Classroom, where we're teaching the truth and preserving our values. I'm your host, Mr. Webb, and I'm glad you're here. This podcast is a haven for conservative teachers and patriots like you who believe in the importance of free speech, traditional values, and education without indoctrination. Each week, we dive into the issues that are plaguing our education system and keeping you up at night. In each episode, we offer common sense ideas to improve education in our classrooms and communities. You may feel like you're the last conservative educator or parent, but I want you to know that you are not alone. By the way, if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with a like-minded patriot. Together, we can teach the truth and preserve our values. In today's episode, we're having a conversation with Holocaust educator and founder of Zohor Shoah, Carolina Simon. Now let's get started. Today, I'm excited to welcome a special guest to the conservative classroom, Carolina Simon. Carolina dedicated her life to ensuring that the Holocaust is remembered and remembered with intention, action, and the teaching of democratic values. She's the founder of Zahor Shoah, and she's here to share her insights about teaching the Holocaust and to talk about the comprehensive educational programs her organization offers. Carolina, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And did I pronounce that correctly, Zahor Shoah? You did great. You did fantastic. <laughs> okay, awesome. To start with, can you tell us a little about yourself, your background, and what led you to founding Zahor Shoah? Sure. Um, so I am a veteran teacher of 20-plus years, um, language arts and social studies, and I have a master's degree in Holocaust literature and ethnic literature from UT Dallas. And um, after 20 plus years of teaching throughout that time, I saw every time I went to a professional development opportunity for Holocaust uh, education, I felt like all the people in the room, with the exception of myself and maybe one or two other people who also had graduate level education in the subject, were quite lost. Um, everything was geared towards a very highbrow uh, content so that the intended audience of the content was graduate level students. And a, and the teacher was expected to come into this professional development as if they already knew a lot on the topic. And then they were expected to take this information back to their classrooms, oftentimes middle school, sometimes as young as elementary school, and make it fit 
for their students. And what often was said was to dumb it down, which I think is a really insulting term. Um, and if you're not a content area expert on something, you're going to have a very hard time being able to modify it to fit a younger audience uh, in a way that still remains you know, true to the academic integrity of the content. So I saw how more and more students were not knowing what the Holocaust was, um, not knowing who Hitler was, not knowing anything about this time in history, not really understanding America's involvement. And I, I put these two things together and decided this had to be uh, the reason, you know. So I, um, I started Zahor Shoah to bridge that gap, to bring better information to teachers at meeting them where they are. Um, so that if they don't know anything, it's okay. We can start from there. And if they already know something or they know quite a bit, then they can be um, part of the training of the next generation of educators. I also saw that what was out there existing um, oftentimes was what I call hijacked because in many places like California, for example, even though they're one of the first states to have Holocaust education, Currently, their Holocaust education has become ethnic studies, and um, literally the teaching of the Holocaust has been reduced to Jews have white privilege, and Anne Frank had white privilege that's in the curriculum. Um, and so that's, that's a problem. And, and so I, I thought, you know, I, I can't just sit by. I have to do something. I have to help make this better. I wasn't aware that the the teaching of the Holocaust, you know, you brought a lot of things to my attention I didn't know about. So I feel like I'm going to learn a lot today. To begin, tell us where you came up with the name Zahor Shoah. So, <laughs> well, all the all the possibilities of using the word Holocaust and education were already taken. <laughs> so I had to kind of get creative. Um, Zahor is a Hebrew word that means to remember with intention. It comes from uh, the Old Testament where when Rachel dies, this is how we are told to remember. We are supposed to remember Rachel with intention. And so um, this is where the Jewish custom of placing a stone on a grave comes from as opposed to putting flowers or what have you. So that it's like we're intentionally participating in the burial, even if it's years later. So it's a very physical way of remembering. Um, and so I, I thought that was appropriate. And then Zach, um, Shoah is the Hebrew word for the Holocaust, um, because the word Holocaust is Greek and it means great sacrifice by fire. And uh, Jews don't use that word in connection to this time in history, because none of us chose to get sacrificed by fire. Um, so we just say Shoah, which means uh, like the great suffering or the great tragedy, something like that. So that's where the word came from. So remembering the Holocaust with intention, basically, is what that yes. what that means. Gotcha. Yes. So what's the mission of Zahor Shoah, and can you elaborate on actively and intentionally remembering the Holocaust and what that means? 
and why is that important? Yeah, so you, in your introduction, you, you kind of um, stated my mission, so, but I'll, I'll, re, I'll rephrase, I'll put it out there again. It's Zahor Shoah believes in remembering with intention through comprehensive, interdisciplinary, age-appropriate curriculum for teachers and students in grades 6 through 12. And um, basically, you know, what that means is comprehensive, I say, because most people who do teach the Holocaust or who think they're teaching the Holocaust um, focus on 1933 to 1945, from the time Hitler is appointed chancellor of the Weimar Republic to the end of World War II. And that would imply that all of Germany and probably most of Europe woke up one day and decided they wanted to kill all their neighbor, all their Jewish neighbors. And that would be highly inaccurate. Um, so comprehensive means we look at what took place for almost a thousand years prior. And I know that sounds daunting, but it, it, it gets chunked. Um, to lead people to walk down that road. How did things like industrialization and urbanization and globalization, for example, affect the way that people saw each other in society? How did that chisel away at our ability to see our shared humanity in someone else so that by the time we reach the 1930s, and we're at the height of innovation and technological development in the 20th century, um, we are no longer capable of seeing someone who, it, who we consider to be very different from us to be still a human being. Um, and so that's comprehensive. Interdisciplinary, because a lot of people think this is just something that you should learn in history class or language arts because it's a history uh, concept or because, you know, there's novels about it. Um, but the Holocaust was so all-encompassing. There are components of it that affect math. There are components of it that affect engineering, that affect biology, that affect um, ethics, philosophy, I mean, every subject that a person can study was affected by the Holocaust. It was, it was, it had tentacles in every aspect of society and of life. And so to look at it from all those different angles allows us to have a better understanding of when are we actually seeing red flags in our contemporary lives and when are we not? Um, and then age appropriate because um, not everything that is part of this time period should be shared with every student. So there's no need, for example, to share with a middle school student um, images of the liberation of Auschwitz or the liberation of Dachau. Like there's no reason why they should be exposed to the images of emaciated people um, or even the piles of dead bodies left behind. They don't need to see that in order to understand the gravity of what took place. Um, and so I look at all those things when I create my curriculum so that they are making 
meaningful impact without creating trauma or dis- desensitization. And you mentioned age appropriate there a couple of times. What is your target audience? What are the ages or the grades that you guys are targeting? So I say six through 12 because most states will have mandates that include middle school through high school. But in my professional opinion, I don't really believe that students under the age of eighth grade, so 13, 14, should really be studying the Holocaust. They could study components of it, right? So like they could study things like um, Jewish history in Europe pre-World War II. They could study, um, you know, concepts of kindness or what have you. But the actual Holocaust, I don't think students under eighth grade should be exposed to it. It's a very mature um, subject that in order to really do it justice, and to really respect and honor the people who died and the people who survived and the people who, even the soldiers who did all the, you know, work to liberate uh, Europe and, and the Jews of Europe. It, it takes a, a certain level of development, maturity um, to, to conquer that, to deal with that. And I have not found that students under eighth grade are able to do that. So, but I know that a lot of mandates will go as young as kindergarten, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah, I would have to agree there. And as a middle school teacher, um, I've taught sixth grade, I've taught seventh grade, I've taught eighth grade. There is such a difference in maturity from sixth grade to seventh grade and from seventh grade to eighth grade. And at the middle school age, even, you know, you take just sixth graders. Some sixth graders are way more mature than other sixth graders. But I think I think eighth grade, I think I think you might be onto something there. I think they're starting to mature and maybe can handle some of those topics. And I know that's one of the challenges is the age appropriateness. What are some other challenges and opportunities in teaching the Holocaust to like eighth graders through seniors? So I found that eighth grade, in many ways, eighth grade is probably the most receptive to the true um, benefit of learning about this time period because they're at this place in their lives where they are the big fish in their small pond and they recognize that they're about to be the small fish in a much bigger pond when they go to high school and they need to have a strong sense of self before they go into that high school setting. If they're going to be able to withstand peer pressure, for example, if they're going to be able to in high school make choices that will benefit them throughout their high school career, as well as beyond high school. Um, And if they're not really secure in who they are, if they don't really feel comfortable in their own skin, um, that can be very challenging. And I think that that's where we have a lot of, you know, within the high school realm, I think that's where a lot of the um, bullying and, you know, challenges of that nature, even even things like, you know, uh, drug use and whatnot at the high school level, I think stems a lot 
from that lack of self-awareness and acceptance. So the in my experience when working with eighth grade, it's been really great because of that. So they, they're really open to learning about, you know, this time period. They have some bizarre personal affinity to the morbid, um, which is why not having all that imagery is really important because they can go down a rabbit hole that has nothing to do with the topic at all. Um, but so many of the survivors uh, were 14 at the time of their, you know, arrest. And, and therefore so many of the survivors stories when they tell, you know, in their memoirs or in their diaries, that's the age that they are writing from. And so the eighth grade student immediately has a very easy connection to the, the testimonies from that time period because of that. So they can envision themselves very quickly, very easily connecting with these people. They also have a, are developed, because they're developing their sense of self, um, they have a strong desire to really be um, like morally, ethically sound. So, which is both good and potentially dangerous, right? So it's great because they want to know what's the right thing to do and they want to be on the right side uh, going forward. It's dangerous because a teacher who is not well-versed in this and is instead using random resources that they pick up or that they watched on some YouTube channel or something um, can easily turn into, and now my classroom is a social justice warrior, activism 101 moment, Um and that, that's dangerous then because the student isn't really fighting for what they think is right. They're fighting for what the teacher thinks is right. And that's not, that's not how it, this should be at all. Um, a student should be able to take a course on the Holocaust and human rights, simply study the facts, and walk away from it understanding what the right side is because of the facts, not because of any other interjections that are put in there. Um, and eighth grade is very open to that. Like I said, with the right material, with the right teacher having been trained in that way, that can be, it can be amazing. High school can also be really great. Um, high school has a different challenge. In high school, by the t- ninth grade is completely uh, a wash. They're, they're, they're too busy trying to find their way to the next building. They, they, it's almost like they have to start over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're totally in survivor mode there. It's almost like a blank slate. Like they didn't even do middle school at all. Like they're just starting over. Um, 10th grade, you know, it's the quintessential they're sophomores. So they're kind of sophomoric. Um, so at times it's perfectly appropriate for them. And at other times they're like not mature enough. It's like some weird gap between being 14 and being 17 that doesn't really take place well for academia. Um, But then juniors and seniors do very well with a Holocaust course. Um, They too, very much like the 14 year old are getting ready to go out into a bigger pond and they kind of understand that they have to 
they have to get a stronghold on who am I? What do I believe? What do I stand for? And why do I believe this? And, and so studying about a time period where people were easily swayed to go against their morals and values, um, simply to not be different, right? Because we, we've all seen the images of uh, Nazi rallies where every person has their arm in a Hitler salute. And it's like, right, but not every person was actually pro-Hitler. They just didn't want to stand out. So it's high school students, to some extent, understand that. They don't want to be followers. They want to be leaders. They just don't fully understand how to achieve that. Um, and studying about this time period and then studying while studying that, being able to showcase every time people did stand up, every time people, you know, followed their own moral compass to do what was right. When they study places like uh, Le Chambon in France, where an entire town had, you know, worked together to hide Jews um, because they felt it was morally the right thing to do. Uh, when you study like about the Danes who did the same, who together they helped, you know, basically uh, uh, shuttle all their Jews over to Sweden uh, in fishing boats. And you juxtapose that with the people of Hungary, for example, who in the same time frame as the Danes, in like about two months, um, instead of saving all their Jews, they rounded them all up and sent them to Auschwitz, all because they wanted to be part of the in crowd. I think that's a very important lesson for, for high school students. And, and they get that. They understand that. They want to study this. Again, um, teachers who are not well-trained and who don't have um, proper resources, who are just kind of given this sink or swim experience with resources uh, and training, um, end up taking this really great opportunity and unfortunately turning it into a activism 101 class. I don't believe they mean to do that. I think that it's, again, these organizations are providing them with information that they can't even begin to process, let alone turn into a lesson plan. So uh, they end up with, you know, we'll just, we'll just watch episodes of, you know, Quinones's, uh what would you do? And it's like, that's not, that's not the Holocaust. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that's, um, but these are, those are the challenges, but also the, the, the amazing opportunities for, for eighth through high school. And I would think an integral part of Holocaust education is understanding anti-Semitism. And I wonder if, and maybe I'm wrong, is that an integral part? And how would you guys teach that differently than how students are being taught now? It is. And um, that's part of that comprehensive component that, that we include. So what that means for us is we look at the over 1,000 years of anti-Semitism in Europe because 
in order to understand where Hitler and the Nazis got their ideas from, we have to go backwards and understand where did they originate? How did they originate? So that students can see why so many Jews in Europe, for example, didn't consider the early warning, warning signs as atrocious as they were be to us today, right? Um, so that's part of that comprehensive look. We're going to look at the, it's a little over a thousand years of anti-Semitism in Europe. It starts from the end of the fall of Rome and goes uh, throughout the Middle Ages, Renaissance, etc., through 20th century in Europe. It also includes modern anti-Semitism. So we look at the pre-Holocaust world, the Holocaust world, and the post-Holocaust world. And in the post-Holocaust world, modern anti-Semitism, which is really uh, starting to get to concerning levels uh, across the world, but particularly in the United States, uh, has to do with anti-Zionism. And so we look at why. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a Zionist? And therefore, why is being anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic in a contemporary world? It also looks at the relationship between Hitler and the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in the 1930s so that students can understand when they look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict of today, they understand where that comes from. They understand that Islamism is Islamic fascism, which is like a tongue twister to say. Um, but they understand what's the root of that. Where did this word Palestine come from, from ancient Rome? They understand where um, modern Palestinian uh, sentiment for Israel comes from. They understand the flag. They understand the whole history of that, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict in connection to the Holocaust, because it's, they are not, nothing that we, we, that's also part of the comprehensive thing. It irks me that we teach history as if they are these floating bubbles that, you know, something happened in 1866, something happened in 1901, something as if there's no connecting line and where, when, there's nothing but a connecting line. We just don't tell the line. We only tell the dots. And so we do that. We make sure that we're not just focusing on the dots on the, on the line, but that we're showing the line itself, that whole road of human uh, history that has led us to moments of greatness, but also moments of great uh, tragedy. That's impressive to me that when you say comprehensive, you're talking about a thousand years before the Holocaust up to how it and the society's response has affected things today. So you have definitely piqued my interest. Uh, how do you find the, the balance between the history of the Holocaust and the response or the ramifications afterwards? Yeah, that's a tough one because um, that's the part nobody wants to look at. <laughs> so, because there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of blame to go around, I guess you could say. Um, I approach things from the perspective of my motto is never again starts with me. And we can't make never again a reality. There will be more genocides. There may even be another genocide against the Jews, unless we're willing to really look at what happened. How could it happen? Why did it happen? What was the world's response to this? How are we responding today? We have to look at those things. Because if we don't, then we're just going to, our grandchildren will find themselves having this conversation. And the goal is, like, I'm probably the only nonprofit in the world that um, my goal is to put myself out of business. Like, (laughs) I I want people to become so well-versed on this that I'm not needed. Like, that's my goal. Because as long as I am needed, that means that we're doing something not quite right in the educational system that, that we're missing a mark. So, you know, that's the balance for me is, is to look at, um, okay, where are the holes? Let's fill those in because we're never going to reach a place of true peace. If, if we just ignore the parts that make us uncomfortable And it is uncomfortable to look at, for example, our great nation and love our nation and acknowledge that FDR had a lot of anti-Semites in his cabinet. He himself was something of an anti-Semite. It's hard to admit these things, that we had people in our own government who actively made choices that did not allow for Jews to be rescued, did not allow for a more proactive approach to the war, for example, for case in point, uh, railroads leading to Auschwitz were never bombed. Excuse was, well, you know, we didn't want to affect the civilian population. Auschwitz itself was not bombed. Well, we didn't want to, you know, bomb any of the people that were there. Okay, but survivors will tell you that they would have preferred to have it bombed and take their chances than be gassed every day. So, you know, these are the types of things that we do have to look at. We have to look at why the Nuremberg trials were amazing. And yet, if we look at the kinds of sentences that were given out and who actually served their sentence and how many sentences were made to serve out. It's a ridiculously low number. Most of the people who were found guilty uh, were also discharged and allowed to go on with their lives. They went on to be judges. They were politicians. They mayors, uh, heads of school, you know, people who had been significant leaders in the Nazi party were allowed to do that in Germany post-Holocaust. How are they supposed to build a Germany that is not anti-Semitic if you have these types of people in charge still? 
The same was done in France. The same was, and this is why they still have serious anti-Semitism. Um, you know, the United Nations and their role uh, with the whole partitioning of uh, Israel and, and, you know, the early years of Israel and, uh, you know, how it constantly had to fight wars against its neighbors, how it still is treated in the United Nations. I mean, all those things have to get looked at uh, if we want to truly understand um, the world we live in and, and if we truly want to make sure that it's a world that is living up to our moral code because everyone has a moral code and it's just a matter of making sure that your life matches your personal moral code. You said a lot of things that got my mind going back. One thing was on how I learned history Uh, And I'm not a history teacher, so maybe the teaching of history has changed. But I know I had some great history teachers. I had some history teachers that, you know, learned this event happened on this date. This was the key figure. And I feel like if we learn history without the lessons, that it can repeat itself. And I love what you said, never again starts with me. I wrote that down after you said that. I thought that was so powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I feel, you know, I feel like it's for my colleagues who uh, get all confused and uh, turn their classrooms into social justice warriors as opposed to just history teachers. um, I feel like that's the key. It's not about making my students fight my battle. It's about helping my students fight their battle. So if never again starts with me and everyone says the word me, then it becomes an I statement. And so it's whatever that means to you. It's, you know, does it mean that you're going to make sure that, you know, anti-Semitism is a thing of the past? Does that mean that, um, you, you know, you are a constitutionalist and therefore you're going to fight for the constitution's integrity? Does that mean that you are um, someone who believes in uh, free speech to, you know, the umpth degree, and therefore you're going to make sure that that's what is happening? Like it, it, it becomes an I statement so that you take ownership over how you're going to make the world that you live in the one that you think is worthy of your moral code. And not otherwise, it's just it, all the other ones have like we this or we that. And it's like, right, but your moral code is not necessarily 100% my moral code. We all have to live up to our personal moral code. Right. Sometimes we um, think back to when you were a teenager. We, that's you and the folks you hang out with. I don't know about you, but. There were times where I had to part ways with some some of the we because we were going to do things that I didn't agree with. So that's a very important distinction you just made. Exactly. And they ha- and and learning how important it is to listen to your own voice of morality and values 
is the difference between being a follower and a leader. That is the absolute difference. Because you have to be a leader in your own life. You might not, you might not become the leader of a company or the leader of the world, but you have to be a leader of your own life. For parents or teachers that might be listening that maybe haven't heard of your organization, but they like what they hear and they like, this is interesting. I want to buy into this and help my student or help my child. Does Zakor Shoa offer programs for parents, supplemental programs? Is it programs for teachers or programs for homeschoolers? Can you tell us about that? Yes. So I have, I took my 20 years of teaching and I wrote a textbook. And um, it's called Beyond Auschwitz, Holocaust and Human Rights Education for the 21st Century. It is available for teachers as a, a you know resource for their classroom. It's also available for parents. It has a teacher's edition as well. So if you're an actual traditional teacher and you wanted the teacher's edition to be able to use all the lesson plans and uh, resources for gallery walks, etc. It's right there. Uh, if you're a parent who homeschools and you don't, you want that, that's great. If you just want the student book, you can buy just the student book. I also have um, all my trainings are available to teachers and parents. So for example, this past summer, we just had the, um, this past July, because we're technically still in summer, uh, we had the first Holocaust Education Symposium, and it was open to teachers, parents, community leaders. I don't exclude anybody. I think everybody's an educator in some way, shape, or form in their lives, and everyone has the opportunity to help uh, their community be, you know, fit our, our mission and our vision um, so it's open to all, uh, as long as you're an adult, you can come cause I don't sugarcoat the information in my trainings. So while I make them age appropriate for students, um, if you're an adult, you're going to get raw information. Um, so that's, that's my rule. No kids at the trainings. Um, so they can come to that. Uh, and I do have on my website, um, there's programs and services and there's a variety. So you can have, you know, an out, a community outreach type program that's done at your church or synagogue or mosque or community center. Um, but you can also have, you know, for just your school. So you can have a classroom thing. You can have a school-wide thing. And then there's also for homeschool parents and micro schools. So you can, if you're a co-op, if you're, uh, a micro school, or if you're just traditional homeschool, there's programs for that. So there's a variety there um, to try and assist at whatever uh, type of educational uh, setting you're in. So the program is comprehensive, it sounds like, not just in the content, but also in the, the audiences. Yeah, That's I guess awesome. so. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, you basically said teachers, parents, uh, religious organizations. Community leaders of all kinds, yeah. And the book, 
Is that available on Amazon? It is available on Amazon. Um, I am looking into having it available on Barnes and Noble as well. They've apparently they've recently <clears throat> started a publishing thing. Uh, it's also available directly through me. So, um, which gives you a slightly better price than um, going through the existing like online publishers. At the end, I'll make sure that you let folks know if they're interested in the book. I'll provide a link in the show notes uh, to Amazon to get the book, or you can tell them how to get that uh, directly from you. Um, the academic symposiums and summer study trips. Can you share more about uh, what those experiences provide? Because that sounds very interesting. And if someone's interested in that, can you share with us maybe some of the details? Yeah. So the symposium, for example, that we just did was a three-day intensive training. The first day uh, we had just foundational information so that if you're coming to the symposium and you really don't know much about the Holocaust or about the history of anti-Semitism or things like that, it was the, uh, it was the day that was going to fill in those gaps for you. The second day was breakout sessions. And so we had master teachers, people who have been in the classroom or still are in the classroom in many cases, um, museum educators, um, institutional directors who have uh, years of teaching this to students and teachers. Uh, they did their own breakout session, whether it was uh, tied to language arts or social studies or one of the creative arts, for example. And so they presented uh, their take on whatever nuanced topic they were talking about. Um, we had someone this year who presented on um, anti-Semitism in America. We had someone else who presented on um, how to uh, incorporate the Holocaust and uh, self-publishing uh, for students in a language arts class so that the class creates a book after having studied this. Um, we had someone present on theater and the Holocaust so that, you know, uh, different creative ways of looking at <clears throat> teaching it. And the third day was really a half day. It was like a farewell brunch and we closed out the whole topic and made sure that throughout we had plenty of opportunities for networking too, because that was really important as well to build like a coalition of well-informed people on the topic. The study trips are different from uh, what's out there already. Currently, most, um, well, not most, but many Holocaust or education organizations have some kind of summer study trip. They all pretty much do the same thing. They will take uh, a group of people. Some of them only take 30 people. Some of them take as many as 100. And they will go to Europe, and they will go to different Holocaust <clears throat> sites. 
and they will learn about the Holocaust at these sites. So they'll take you to Auschwitz. They'll take you to Dachau. Mine is different. We read someone's memoir and then we walk in their steps. That's my study trip because I'm all about giving back people's humanity. And we can't do that if we're always learning about how they died and we never learn about how they lived. We can't do that if we're so focused on the history of the Holocaust that encompasses Nazism because that's Nazi history. That's not the history of Jews. That's not the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not the history of the European people, period. So we read someone's memoir and then we walk in the, in as much in their footsteps that the memoir shared as possible. So for example, I'm working right now on coordinating uh, this, this summer's study trip, which would take us to France. <clears throat> we would study uh, the Holocaust in France. We would go to Paris. We would go to the Valdiv Roundup to look at, you know, what that was, how that was. We have a survivor who um, survived the Valdiv Roundup, and we would meet with him, and we would have dinner with him. Wow. We then would go to Le Chambon in the mountains of France, and we would stay with the people in the town who saved 5,000 Jews. And we would stay in their homes so that the same, you know, basically the descendants of the people who took in strangers during the Holocaust will again take in strangers as they studied the Holocaust. And then we'll, you know, cross over the mountains, <clears throat> go into Spain, look at fascism in Spain for a minute, and then take the train down to Morocco and go to the French protectorate of Morocco and look at how Jewish culture in Morocco existed. So we can see the difference between Jewish culture uh, in France that was there for a thousand years and then Jewish culture in Morocco that was there for a little over a thousand years. And we'll learn about King Mohammed V and how he saved the Jews of Morocco, even though he was supposed to send them to Auschwitz. Um, <clears throat> And how did how has Jewish life in these places uh, been different or, the, or stayed the same um, post Holocaust? And so that's a very different way of going on one of these Holocaust study trips. Uh, it's not this, you know, two weeks of depression because I've gone on some of these trips with these other organizations, and while they're very informative, they're very depressing. Right. Whereas this is like, we're looking at life, we're looking at hope, we're looking at faith. And, and yes, some of that includes um, some horrible places and horrible moments in history, but we're constantly looking for how did humanity rise up as opposed to bring itself down. And so that's a, that's a big difference. Well, I'm glad you explained that because I had in my notes returning the humanity mm -hmm. lost to the victims. Yeah. That, that was one of the objectives of this wording, actively and intentionally remembering the Holocaust. Yes. Like we mentioned earlier. 
Yes. So I appreciate that. Appreciate you going into that. Uh, Zahor Shoah focuses on three things, respect, understanding, and appreciation. Am I correct in that? And how yes. do you break those three elements? How do you weave that into your curriculum? So I'm constantly looking at um, how do we respect each other, respect ourselves? How do we foster that? Um, how do we appreciate our differences instead of fear them? Uh, but appreciate does not mean embrace, which I think that is a big uh, component as well, because I, I can appreciate you being different and I can respect you being different. I don't have to embrace it, right? So I don't have to make it my own. I don't have to change my morals and values just to respect you. And I think that's a big difference also in the way I approach things, because if we look at our um, contemporary lives in the United States, um, we have, and to some extent, the whole world, really, we have a lot of people who are wanting to be respected, but they're demanding to be accepted. And I don't have to do that. I don't have to act because when I accept you, I'm saying whatever you're claiming is as your truth is also is, is just plain true. And that's not that's I don't find that to be healthy or productive or um, falling within the values of the U.S. and its constitutional concepts. What does is respect. So I, I create, I want people to understand, I want students to understand that, you know, the kids sitting next to them may have piercings from head to toe, and they might find that to be offensive. Okay. The kid with the piercings does not need to change his piercings no more than the kid without the piercings needs to become pierced. They can both exist. They can both have mutual respect for each other's humanity without having to eliminate their own way of being human. So that's what, you know, that's what all my uh, lessons look at for respect, for acceptance, for it's all, that's what I mean by that, is that we're going to look at understanding, right? So we're going to understand who, who we are as individuals, because if I don't understand myself, I'm never going to be able to understand somebody else. So I have to start with me. Everything has to start with ourselves so that we can then go out into the world and seek to then understand more than be understood. Because if I understand myself, I don't, I don't need you to understand me. I'm good. And so this is the, the premise of it. Um, but the, when, I, when, I, when I looked at those three, my main focus was really, okay, how I found so many, particularly in high school, I had found that students had no concept of the idea that your rights end where mine begin. They had no concept of this. I was like, no, your rights end 
when mine begin. I'm like, so you have the right to live however you want and do whatever you want until it affects me. And then, and then that's the limit. That's the boundary and vice versa. And they had no idea of this. And so they were functioning in this headspace where if they found something to be offensive, and a lot of young people have this problem right now, if they think you're being offensive, you have to get shut down because you're being offensive. And I and so I try to get them to understand that one, the Constitution has nothing in there that says you may not be offensive. Second, I try and help them understand that it's not, you know, nobody died in the Holocaust because somebody was being offensive or right. being offended and like that, or being a bully or being bullied. Like these are not, this is not the, the point. I'm like, the point is that someone's humanity was denied and denied to the point that they were dehumanized entirely. All the language about them was being used was as if they were rodents or cockroaches and treated as such from beginning to end. I'm like, so that's the point. That's what you have to worry about. Not, you know, if I'm calling you, you know, a name that you don't like, I'm like, that should we, should we be nice to each other? Of course we should. Should we be kind to each other? Of course we should. Is that really what's going to, uh, keep me awake at night? No, I'm, I'm much more concerned with, you know, are we, uh, taking someone's constitutional rights away because, and, and that's, you know, that's part of what they do in my, in the book uh, that I wrote is they have to compare the U S constitution with the Weimar constitution so that they understand the value of language in our constitution, how it is written so that it, if, if it is followed as written, our constitution absolutely protects against genocide protects about against about just about most things that are horrible in life if it's followed as written i mean i I think the constitution is probably the most divinely inspired document (laughs) in modern times you know I'm i'm a patriotic guy so i'm a little uh I'm a little partial, but yeah, I kind of like our constitution also. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, like, don't touch it. <laughs> but, and I say that because I've read, I've read many other constitutions. Um, and there's even when, even when a foreign constitution is written, uh, having used the U S constitution as its guide, um, it's like, I sit there wondering, did they even read it? Because this is this is night and day with what we are. Uh, so I have them look at that because then they understand, you know, the concepts of when when a, a in the, under the Weimar Constitution, uh, and all of a sudden Jews were told they weren't citizens anymore just because they weren't German or they were German but they weren't considered German anymore because you now had to be, you know, uh, genetically pure to be considered German. That was worded in their constitution. 
And Hitler did not put that in there. That predated him. So, you know, it's like uh, uh, I show them how, you know, Hitler did not do anything that was not technically legal. It's just that their constitution was kind of wonky and allowed for these kinds of semantics to then be interpreted in a way that led down a very ugly path. Whereas our constitution does not say that. It doesn't say you have to be American, for example, to have free speech. So there's never an opportunity to claim that you have to, you know, only a nativist can have free speech. No, everybody has free speech. So these are big differences between the U.S. and the Weimar Constitution and the societies that developed them and the cultures that developed them. But it also comes back to what you were asking me before about, you know, the post-Holocaust balance, right? Um, I mean, so many people, young people, fly off the handle thinking that we're becoming you know, Nazis and that, that, you know, the Weimar constitution, the Weimar, you know, Republic and, and that, you know, it's practically the end of days for society from that perspective. And I, and I say to them, have you read their constitution? Because if you read the constitution that they lived under, you can understand how these things were able to happen and happen quickly because it was already part of their legal code. Hitler just took it to, um, you know, a degree that probably most people, when they were putting in those words, did not expect. Uh, but they certainly had some level of bias involved when they were writing it because they were, they did use those words. They did choose them. So, you know, I'm like, you have to know the history to be, you know, able to then apply it to modern times or not. Because if not, you're just making comparisons between apples and oranges. And I feel like uh, circling back around to not repeating history, I feel like that's a... I'm glad we circled around to that here at the end. That made me think of uh, three things. You know, nowadays, folks on... A lot of times the left, but conservatives are also guilty of this to some extent. Uh, But specifically, like, if you don't agree with me, you're a Nazi. If you don't agree with me, you're a racist. And if you don't agree with me, your words are violence, and you need to stop. And I feel like if these specifically young folks, you know, the young people, if they would learn what you're talking about, to find out who the Nazis actually were and what they stood for, what true racism is, and what actual violence is. I feel like that would that would be change. It's life change is the word I'm looking for, I guess. Yeah, it, it would be life changing for them because life changing. There it is. They, That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, because I mean they again, I I don't look at anyone who is young and um, zealous uh, for a better world um, with disdain. Uh, I think that they are doing the best they can with the information they've been given. The problem is they've been given bad information. 
Um, so yeah, they think that, uh, being an ant, an antifa, right? Uh, antifascista is a good thing. They don't know the history of the antifascists. Right. They don't understand that while Hitler had brown shirts, the communists had the antifascista black shirts. Like, it's, it, it's not new. They didn't invent it yesterday. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's documentation of it, pictures, everything, even the, uh, you know, fist in the air, power to the people idea is not new. It's not part of the civil rights movement. It predates that. Um, so, you know, it's, and just, and it's like, Hitler is a perfect example because he was a very good manipulator of existing knowledge. So he didn't invent anything. Um, he and his cabinet were probably the most unoriginal people on the planet. Uh, like I, my, the middle school students love it when I tell them that this was a band of misfits that could not find their way out of a paper bag on their own. They were literally living in their mommy's basements, uh, even though they were like, you know, 30 years old. Um, but together, together they formed the perfect storm of hate. Uh, which is, again, why it's so important to know your own personal moral code uh, so that you pick the right friends, um, people who will inspire you to be your best self, not not your worst. Um, but, you know, they, they just took information regarding a number of things from spirituality all the way through to eugenics uh, and really manipulated the ideas of propaganda and, uh, you know, graphic design and rhetoric and composition to, to create the perfect storm of, of bigotry and hate. And, um, and it continues because we don't really look at that part. We don't really study that part. So you're absolutely right that if kids knew, you know, what is real racism? They would, if they understood what real racism is, they would understand eugenics. They would understand what true racial supremacy means. Because it's not white supremacy. People like to use that term. But that's not accurate. Because you can be a racial supremacist and not be white. Right. So it's the understanding of where that originates, what what that nonsense is, Um and how it manifests in our daily lives. Because the only thing that survived the Holocaust was eugenics. It's the only thing that survived, truly, untouched. And, and it has a variety of manifestations, um, all the way from, you know, racial superiority, all the way to medical, uh, you know, experimentations. So there's, you know, kids, we don't teach these things. Because those are things that are so gray that uh, too many people might get um, tainted in the teaching of that history. Uh, you know, if they understood um, what true violence is, like you said, right? right. Uh, then, then they they would understand that. Yeah, words words are never never the problem. For a thousand years, Europe had extreme anti-Semitism. Not once did they create an industrialization of death. 
because words are not violent. Words are annoying. Words can be hurtful. <laughs> uh, you know, words can be a lot of things, but um, they're not violent. Only, only action is violent. So, yeah, the the it would be life changing for them. It would be it would be a complete uh, life changing, not just for the individual, but then for everything that the ripple effect of that, right? Because then they would, everything they would do would come from a different uh, perspective. Would definitely be life changing. And I feel like a lot of the things we've talked about are so important. So this might be a difficult question, but I usually end the episode with a few key takeaways or one key takeaway. So what's the one thing, Carolina, that you want the listener to remember if they don't remember anything else about this episode? I would say the most important thing is my motto. Never again starts with me. Because as a teacher or a parent, what that means is to be proactive in what is your student, whether it's your own child or the children that sit in front of you uh, every day, what are they learning about this? How are they learning it? Is your school teaching it at all? If they are, do they think that it's appropriate to simply show a movie uh, like Schindler's List and after two hours call it a day? Um, Are they in a school like in California where they think it's appropriate to say that Anne Frank had white privilege? Are they in a school where they are, you know, teaching them this with integrity and uh, um, intention, or is it an afterthought? Because I think that parents and teachers have a lot more um, power than they realize in making sure that what what is being taught and how is being, it is being taught uh, is ap- is absolutely connected to to how they approach their administration their school board, et cetera. So um, I think that's the biggest takeaway. And, and if they, and if your listeners are interested in knowing how to do that, how to become more proactive in that way, um, I, I certainly can um, guide them in that. Well, you read my mind (laughs) as we wrap up the conversation can you share with our listeners where they can find more information about uh, your projects, your organization, how they can connect with you on social media? Basically, this is your time to plug anything you want to promote. Or if there's anything that you wanted to make sure and mention and didn't, now's your time. Yeah, so um, they can go to my website. Uh, www.zahorshoah.org and so that's www.zahorshoah.org they can follow me on Twitter um, Zahorshoah that's it, that's my handle Zahorshoah 
on Twitter. Um, same handle on Instagram. Um, I want to say it's the same one on Facebook. Um, I, but I, I think it's like, you know, Facebook has like a weird like thing, but I'm pretty sure that it's just the Horshawa, you know, after the whole facebook.com thing. Um, but yeah, I like, I go on Twitter like every night. Um, and I tweet probably about things that I shouldn't tweet about. <laughs> um, but you know, I am a, uh, rogue, uh, voice in this, in the Holocaust education community. I, I am, far more conservative than most of my colleagues. I do believe in not insisting that only, um, that only a conservative voter is a Nazi. That's ridiculous. Um, uh, or an anti-Semite. Uh, these things do not see political or racial color. They, they can be found <laughs> everywhere. Um, and I, and I point that out. Um, so yeah, those are the those are the best ways. And then email. I have email, Zahorshoa at gmail.com. And we, we mentioned your book. Um, I'll try to put a link to the book on Amazon. And how can they get the book directly from you? So if they go to my website, there is a shuk, which is Hebrew for store. Uh, and that's um, it's in the store. It's in the shook. All right. And my listeners can find links to everything that you just mentioned in today's show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like we could have kept the conversation going for another hour. There's so much, so much to unpack and there are some things that we didn't touch on. So I'd love to have you back on sometime. I would love that. I think this is great. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, and I know our listeners, hopefully they learned something today like I did and can appreciate your insights on uh, Holocaust education. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thanks. That's it for today's episode of The Conservative Classroom. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Most importantly, share this podcast with a like-minded educator, parent, or patriot. You can also connect with us on social media and share your thoughts on today's topic. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to teach the truth and preserve our values, consider showing support for the conservative classroom and your fellow conservative teachers by showing off some conservative swag. Visit our merch store by clicking the link in the show notes. In addition to clothing and coffee mugs with our logo, name, and slogan, we also have items with our colors and schoolhouse logo only. We know it's hard to be openly conservative in some school districts, but your silent show of support may help you find other conservatives in your community. In other words, you might not be comfortable wearing a shirt that says the conservative classroom on it, but if you wear one that has a low-key logo on it, you won't be pushing your politics on your liberal friends or your students. But you might just discover another closet conservative. Even if you don't, you'll know that you are quietly supporting the values best for your kids 
your school, and your community. Find more ways to support the podcast at theconservativeclassroom.com. That's theconservativeclassroom.com. Until next time, this is Mr. Webb reminding you that you are not alone. See you next time on The Conservative Classroom. Teaching the truth, preserving our values.